Now let's look together at Romans chapter 13. Romans 13. And let's look at verses 6 and 7. Romans 13, beginning at verse 6. For for this cause pay ye tribute also. For they are God's ministers attending continually upon this very thing. Render therefore to all their dues. Tribute to whom tribute is due. Custom to whom custom. Fear to whom fear. Honor to whom honor. May God bless the reading of his word and give us help in understanding it and applying it to ourselves. We have seen in the first five verses of this chapter the command to be in submission to civil government and a whole series of reasons why. And those reasons culminated in verse 5 with an appeal to our conscience before God. Now, the apostle, by inspiration, addresses a matter that is very closely related and I think we understand why, and that is the matter of paying taxes or tribute, as it says here. It is in the plural. uh, It might be translated taxes or tributes. Is is, Is it not always a sore spot, the subject of paying taxes? It was in the New Testament times. And I think ever since then, I should point out, by the way, that verse 6 is not a command. It is not an imperative, but it is an indicative. For this cause, you do pay taxes, uh, he says. He assumes that believers are already paying taxes, and that they understand that they should do so. For for this cause, pay ye tribute also. So the first thing that we note here is the reason why we pay taxes. For this cause. Well, what is the cause? <laughs> The antecedent that is nearest is conscience. For conscience' sake, we not only obey civil government, rulers, magistrates, and and that includes various levels uh, from local to uh, the empire and the nation in our case, but also conscience 
tells us that we should pay taxes. Our heart, informed as it is instinctively by God, and is, is this just something that a Christian conscience has, or does an unbelieving conscience also have something of this? Well, Paul here is certainly describing believers, but I think we could make the case that even unbelievers normally have some conscience, and, and there is an appeal to conscience at that level, that their conscience tells them that civil government must be funded. It takes money to do the things that need to be done that are necessary and that are legitimate matters for civil government to to address and to deal with. Matters that serve the public interest, matters that serve the public good. And we've seen that good emphasized uh, several times over in verses 3 and 4. Good works, that which is good. Uh, verse 4, the minister of God to thee for good. And so the good that civil government does must be paid for. And how is it paid for? Well, it's paid for with taxes from the people. <clears throat> If I was more qualified in economics, we might do a study on, uh, you know, that the government doesn't create money. They can, they can print it all day long, but it's just paper. Real money is, is gold, silver, something that has value in itself. The paper, if it's not backed up by something real, is just Paper, but again, uh, that's beyond my expertise. Paying taxes is the right thing to do. The government doesn't have any money of its own. The only money it has is money that it gets from the people. How often do we hear people say, well, the government has money? <clears throat> No, the people have money, and the government gets money from the people. And Paul tells us here that that's the way it should be. He does not address exorbitant rates. I was visiting with someone the other day, and they said, You know, uh, I have heard it said that Caesar shouldn't claim a higher percentage than God does. <laughs> and if God claims 10%, then uh, Caesar should be content with that and no more. Well, that may be a subject that we can discuss and, and, and consider. So why do we pay taxes? Well, according to this passage, conscience tells us our heart tells us it's the right thing to do. Now, just a word here about the tax in view. What's called tribute here. There are several terms that are used to describe taxes in the New Testament. The term that's used here, and it's used again in verse 7, 
is, uh, according to one lexicon, a direct tax which was levied annually on houses, lands, and persons and paid usually in produce. At least uh, that's what one lexicon offers. It's interesting that Luke uses the same term in his account of the tax question put to our Lord, though Matthew and Mark use a different term. Luke uses this same term in, in Luke 20 and verse 22. Master, we know that thou sayest and teachest rightly, neither acceptest thou the person of any, but teachest the way of God truly. Is it lawful for us to give tribute unto Caesar or not? And of course the Lord gave them this answer that only the God-man could give. He perceived their craftiness. They're trying to catch him and so that any answer he gives, they can find fault with. He perceived their craftiness and said unto them, Why tempt ye me? Show me a penny. Whose image and superscription hath it? They answered and said, Caesar's. And he said unto them, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which be Caesar's, and unto God the things which be God's. And it says they could not take hold of his words. They were looking for something that they could grasp and use against him. They couldn't, there was a perfect answer. They marveled at his answer and held their peace. That means he shut them up. They had nothing more to say. <clears throat> it is interesting, of course. Well, let me point out first, while I'm still reading this passage, Caesar's image was on the coin that they showed him. And uh, historians tell us that that was uh, Augustus Caesar, actually, who insisted on being called God and worshipped as a God. And yet the Lord Jesus did not flinch at using the coin because that's what's in circulation and saying, pay to Caesar his share, what's due to him. <clears throat> what is also interesting is a little later, just a very few days later, the whole multitude of them arose and led him unto Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, we found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to give tribute to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. This was an absolute, uh, utterly unfounded accusation, a totally false accusation. Nowhere had Jesus said not to pay tribute to Caesar. It was the exact opposite. We just read it. He told him to pay tribute tribute to Caesar. 
And I would just mention this then in passing in way of application. We ought to expect to be falsely accused of all manner of uh, insubordination and insurrection and the like. If they accused the Lord of these things falsely, they will accuse his disciples of these things falsely. But let us make sure that it is falsely. If we are accused of being tax rebels or tax evaders or something like that, make sure that it is unsubstantiated and untrue. Well, the next thing that we note from this verse is the term that's used for civil government, God's ministers. Now, we've seen uh, the term translated minister of God twice there in verse 4, and we pointed out that the term there is the same term that is, it speaks of, there's kind of a low servant and a high servant. This is the term for a high servant, a deacon, literally. But the term that's used here in verse 6 is an entirely different term and gives us a little nuance of, of significance. It's a term that literally means a public servant, a public a servant of the people. And it's a term that's used several times in the New Testament and almost always with a religious connotation or a religious context. Just turn a page or two and see in chapter 15, verse 16, Paul uses this term to describe himself. It's not the term he most often uses, but he does use it once here in Romans 15, 16, that I should be the minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. It's the same term that he uses in our text. Angels are called ministers in this, with this same term in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 7. And uh, the Lord Jesus himself as our priest is described with this same word in Hebrews 8.2 that Christ is a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched and not man. We get our English word liturgy from this term. And you can kind of see the, the connection of thought here Liturgy pertains to a worship service. We even call our, what we do on the Lord's Day, a service. And we serve the Lord by worshiping Him. And so this is that term, liturgos. God's ministers, but here it, of course, is in the context of civil government. The point then is this, we ought to view those who serve in civil government as God's public servants. An interesting passage from the Old Testament in this way is Proverbs chapter 8, and there wisdom is speaking, and we see Christ speaking 
by way of, of extension, inasmuch as he is wisdom personified. Wisdom says, by me kings reign and princes decree justice. By me princes rule and nobles, even all the judges of the earth. Well, would to God that all kings and princes and judges uh, had wisdom. But certainly it is by Christ's appointment that those who fill those offices fill them. And we ought to view it that way. Without that perspective, it's going to be very difficult for us to follow the instruction that is in verse 7. To render therefore unto all their dues. As believers in Christ, we have a unique perspective on paying taxes because we have a unique perspective on public servants. We see a spiritual dimension to their service and their office. We see a spiritual dimension, therefore, to our support of them financially. We see a spiritual dimension to their claim upon some of our wealth. Because it is necessary for the funding of public good. A term like this, God's servants makes me want to say that we should support them religiously. That's sort of maybe a little bit of a play on words or an application of the word religiously that, that kind of fits pretty well here. Seriously, when you pay your taxes, Try your best. It's going to be hard, but try your best to think of it as paying taxes to God. For conscience sake, we pay taxes because those who collect them, those who receive them, are God's ministers. Now, those who receive the taxes, these ministers of God, ought to recognize this principle themselves, but oftentimes they don't. But they should. They should recognize that they serve at God's appointment and that they will answer to him for how they have used their office, and how they have exercised their ministry, if we can call it that. They do not simply answer to the voters. You know, in our system of government with elected officials, the voters are at least ideally considered to be the highest authority. And and the politician knows that at the end of the day, if he answers to the voters, and if the voters don't like what he's done, then they will vote him out and vote someone else in. Of course, now that they 
have made a fine art of stealing elections, it seems. Uh, Maybe (laughs) they don't have to answer to the voters after all, but they, they should understand that there's an authority higher than the voters. That's my point. And that is the authority of heaven. They are not just our ministers, our public servants. They are God's public servants. And they are there to serve the public interest and not just their own interest. Would to God it were always that way. If our conscience tells us to pay taxes, their conscience ought to tell them to use those funds wisely, not to waste them, not to steal them, not to appropriate them to themselves beyond a reasonable salary. They should understand that as God's ministers, they will give account to God for what they have done with their office and with the taxes that they've collected. They will answer to God for how they count the votes in an election. Selah. The verse goes on to say that they are attending continually upon this very thing. This is a perspective upon their job. It's, they're devoted to administering civil government. They attend continually upon this very thing. Attending continually means that, at least for some, it's a full-time job to govern. And that's a legitimate Occupation. Civil government is not to be neglected. It's not to be done halfway or haphazardly. It is a legitimate office and a legitimate calling ordained of God. That brings us back to verse 1, really. Again, the specific form of government is not delineated here in Paul's day it's an emperor we have a a republican form of government in which we elect officials to represent us and we could talk about the place of term limits and so on but that's, uh, that's really beyond the scope here but we can say this When government is less than it should be, when government is not functioning like it ought to ideally, and that's always, (laughs) then we're tempted sometimes to think, and some actually will say, we'd be better off with no government. This government is so bad and so corrupt, we'd be better off with none. And that seems to fly in the face of Romans 13. As we've said a time or two already, bad civil government is better than none at all. Chaos 
and anarchy is the worst option, as bad as some government is. Anarchy is worse. And anarchy will not remain for long. Someone will, f- will step in to fill that void, usually a tyrant. Now, let me give you an interesting insight from William Barclay. Don't take this as an endorsement of everything that he says by any means. Once in a while he says something good, and uh, once in a while he, he really hits the nail on the head. And he may have done so with this. He says, ideally, men should be bound together by Christian love. Or society, in other words, should be bound together by Christian love. That's the ideal. But the reality is, he says, they are not. Let me just interject again. The reason that... that Christian love doesn't bind everyone together is that not everyone's a Christian. Then he goes on to say, the cement which keeps them together is the state. End quote. And that seems to reflect the... the, the attitude of Paul here in Romans 13. He isn't talking about some ideal, you know, millennial kind of Christian government. He's describing things in reality as they are and what makes a, a body of people a cohesive unit is at least in some great measure being under the same government. Well, we look forward to the life to come, the world to come, in which, yes, everyone in heavenly glory will be bound together by Christian love, and Christ will be the one and only king and governor in that perfect world. But in the meanwhile, on this earth, we have public servants, ministers of God, who at least to some degree have the public good at heart, or at least they're forced to, to save appearances, if nothing else. And they, to some degree, some better than others, watch over and preserve and protect the public good. And as Matthew Henry says, protection draws allegiance. We might even say it this way, protection draws obligation because of the the protection of good that civil government provides. We have this obligation to pay taxes. Now, let me say one thing last thing here and it's from verse 7 render therefore to all their dues the word dues here introduces an important subject Uh, 
Paying taxes is a debt that we owe. We owe it to civil government in the immediate sense. In the ultimate sense, we owe it to God. That's the argument of verse 6. They are God's ministers. And I'm emphasizing this point because some have had the view, some religious writers have had the view that paying taxes is a gift from us to civil government. And that if the civil government does not use the money in a way that pleases us or a way that is truly right, then we have the right to withhold that gift from civil government. Paul, however, does not say, render therefore to all your gifts. <laughs> he says, render your their dues. It's due to them. <clears throat> to avoid paying taxes, some have used this argument. I, I read a lengthy answer from a, a Baptist answering a Presbyterian back in the early 1800s. And, and this was one of, of several interesting and, and persuading arguments. The paying of taxes is a debt that must be paid. It's an obligation. It is not left up to our discretion. It's due. And failure to pay, then, is not just withholding a gift. Failure to pay... Tax evasion is theft. Well, of course, we all wonder, well, what are we supposed to do if the public funds are used for evil purposes and used to pay for evil things? I believe that since Paul does not answer that here, what we are supposed to conclude is that what the civil government uses the taxes for is beyond our control. They will have to answer to God for what they do with the money that they collect. And in our system of government, Inasmuch as we have a voice in the spending process and the allocating process and so on, and we can uh, communicate with our legislators and uh, representatives and so on, then we ought to use those means and, and try to get the ear of those who, have, who are in the decision-making process. But understand, in Paul's context, as far as, as I know, there was no voice. Nothing to compare to what we have today. The Roman government, under the direction of the emperor, used taxes for most any project that the emperor desired. They would fund, for example, pagan temples and priests. Paul knew that. 
But he says, pay your taxes. Your conscience tells you. Not once do we see Christians refusing to pay taxes because Caesar was using them for evil purposes. Think how common in the New Testament, in, in the days of our Lord Jesus, were dishonest tax collectors. I mean, that was the most dishonest career or job that anyone could have. And yet we never find the dishonesty of tax collectors given as a reason to refuse to pay. Say, well, it's not fair that they are overcharging me. No, it's not. There's a lot of unfairness in this life. God will settle the accounts on judgment day. And we have to be patient and wait on him. The real solution to dishonest tax collectors is the gospel. Conversion. As in the case of Matthew, the publican, and Zacchaeus, the publican. The gospel that brings salvation, conversion, transformation to the soul is the only real fix and cure for any problem and every problem. May God help us to remember that and keep that focus. Now, in the time that remains, I'm going to ask you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 17 because this is a a very relevant passage to this text in Romans from the life of our Lord, Matthew 17, beginning at verse 24. And when they were come to Capernaum, they that received tribute money came to Peter and said, Doth not your master pay tribute? Now, the word tribute here is a a different word than what we just saw in Romans 13. This term refers to the coin that was used to pay the annual tax levied by the religious leaders of Israel for the purpose of defraying the temple expenses. So this is a Jewish tax. It's a, you might think of it as a religious tax. It's a tax to support the temple, to maintain the, the temple and, and, to, and the priests and their families. And so these people come and ask Peter, Jewish people obviously, Does not your master pay this tax? And listen to what it says. So Peter answers, yes. He knew that Jesus paid it. And so he comes into the house where Jesus was and it says that Jesus prevented him. Jesus uh, spoke to Peter addressing this subject even before Peter had had a chance to bring it up. 
And he says, uh, what thinkest thou, Simon? Of whom do the kings of the earth take custom or tribute? And these, both these terms are, are yet different from even the one used in verse 24. But the question is, do the kings of the earth make their children pay taxes? You know, does, does Caesar make uh, Caesar Jr. pay taxes? Or does he make all of the, the non-family citizens of his realm uh, pay taxes? Peter says, of strangers, not of children. Jesus saith unto him, then are the children free. Notwithstanding, lest we should offend them, go thou to the sea, and cast an hook, and take up the fish that first cometh up, and when thou hast opened his mouth, thou shalt find a piece of money. That take and give unto them for me and thee. What Jesus is saying here in, in verse 25 and 26 is, amounts to this. He's saying, Peter, I could claim tax exemption on the basis that this, is, this temple is the house of God. I'm the son of God. And so I'm exempt from paying. He says that would be a legitimate argument. And it's a fascinating thing. It's, this, it's the same principle when Jesus went in on more than one occasion and drove out the money changers and overturned their tables and, and ran them off of the premises. He was the only one who could do that. He was the only one who had authority to do that because it was his house. It was his father's house. It wasn't Peter's house or anyone else. Jesus was the only one who had the authority to do that. And he did it at the beginning and at the ending of his public ministry. And he's, he's arguing in a way from the same principle here. This is my father's house. So I don't have to pay the tax. I'm family. <laughs> but then he says, I'm not going to appeal that case. I'm not going to plead that exemption. He says, in order to avoid needless offense, I'm going to pay it. And I'm going to see to it that you pay it also. So he sends Peter to fish. Now, you know, the, the normal method of fishing in those days, as I understand, was to drag a net through the, the sea. Here is a different method. This, this is, this is a, a surgical fishing expedition with a hook. He says, put a hook in the water. You're going to catch a fish. And then you open his mouth. And how in the world did the fish keep the coin in his mouth and still bite the hook? I mean, this is a miracle in, in, in a number of ways. And when you opened his mouth, You'll find a piece of money. He says, that take and give unto them for me and thee. And he did this, he says, to avoid offending them, to avoid offending those who did not have the right and really the, the ultimate 
perspective on this matter. This coin, by the way, is what we might call a double drachma. And the tax was one drachma per person, and so this this double drachma coin was enough for both Peter and Jesus. Now, what became of that double drachma? Where did it go? It went into the temple coffers. And then where did it go? It is not unlikely that the chief priests picked that up with about 29 others and they ended up in Judas's hands as his payment for betraying the Lord Jesus himself to these priests. Judas certainly knew where the money had come from because when his conscience was destroying him, he comes back into the temple, it says, and throws the money down at their feet in the temple court. He knew that this was temple money. And so it's, it's, it's fascinating to think that the Lord Jesus quite possibly paid one of the coins that ended up in Judas's bag for a little while. Was there, and if that is the scenario indeed, can you ever imagine a more evil use of what we think of as public funds or tax funds ever in human history? And yet, the omniscient Son of God paid that tax. Well, there's surely an application for us today when we think of all of the evil things done with the taxes that we pay. But we still pay them. And it brings us back in a way to exactly what Jesus said, lest we should offend them. And I've, I've mentioned this a time or two, and I, I think almost it's worthy of a whole message that there's a great concern about, number one, our conscience before God. That's the highest priority. But number two, the public image that Christians portray to unbelievers. It's a disgrace for us to be thought of as the the unruly ones, the tax evaders, and the like. And in a way, I think that's the whole point of Romans 13 here, is we don't want to give Christianity a bad name. And so we suffer persecution we suffer injustice and we we do it for the cause of Christ and for the opportunity to advance the gospel 
and not hinder the gospel and not injure the cause of Christ. And ultimately, we do it to keep a clear conscience before God. So I'll just say this in closing. In a practical way, we are in a very complicated situation ourselves today because not only at the state level but even more at the national level we are under very complex tax codes tax codes that even accountants can't sort out and and they admit that to us tax codes that are contradictory and everyone knows you can call you know the the can I say bureaucrat and get one answer one day and <clears throat> call another one that picks up tomorrow and get a different answer and it's as if this is by design so that they can come after any one of us anytime they please is that is that what's really going on here that that's what it looks like to many of us and some have been caught in exactly that vortex and so again i'll just say at this time that we we need god-given wisdom in dealing with this modern problem <clears throat> i believe it is legitimate to use legal loopholes and for your accountant or if you do your own to take advantage of every legal advantage and loophole that is offered. But always avoid needless offense and be honest with your conscience. We pay taxes for conscience sake. God give us wisdom.